0: Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, director of Byron Writers' Festival. You're listening to the podcast Gender Still on the Agenda, featuring Clementine Ford, Bree Lee and Michael Sala in conversation with Mandy Nolan, recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers' Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Off you go, Mandy. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Um, it's all right. um... I'm I'm going on love. Um, (laughs) That and... uh, I I did notice I was here last night and it's great to be doing a gender session. I said, can you put the vagina-shaped cactus up there? But unfortunately, this the is
1: what feminists use.
0: Oh. <laughs> oh, I have to get one.
1: <laughs> yeah. it, it, it suits the barren climate in there. Oh. Barren, dry climate.
0: Oh, you should see. Only flowers once a year, but it's fucking worth <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> once that happens. So we're here today talking about talking about gender. Um, it's putting gender on the agenda. It's like using the word gender a lot. And, and, and it's really about how, you know, looking at how that impacts on people's lives, how it impacts, you know, societally and, and you know, why are we still talking about this and why is it still so tough? I, I had this happen not that long ago, it must have been a couple of years ago, when I, at a much smaller level to what Clementine's experienced, is writing oh, one of my blogs and I'd written something about 10, it was only 10 things I hate about Tony Abbott, so I'll just make a list. <laughs> And and you know you kind of it's when you get all the stuff back. Anyway, you you, I don't mind people if they like Tony Abbott to say why they like him. Why I was wrong, but instead it just came back going, "You're fat, you're fat and ugly, you're fat and ugly, you're fat and ugly, you're, f- <laughs> you're fat and ugly, you're you still fat and ugly." Uh, you're you're a what was I? I was an abomination to all women. I went, "Oh fuck, that's a pretty heavy responsibility." Uh, <laughs> I'm happy to abom one, but you know, bomb all women by being fat and ugly. Uh, and I was really amazed that, and I ended up writing something about it afterwards, but just just how interesting and powerful those words are around silencing female voice, that without arguing whether I was fat, ugly, beautiful, thin, whatever, why aren't fat, ugly women given a voice? Like, why, why was that even words used? But why was that a reason to actually say that what I had to say was was meaningless or, or not worthwhile? Um, I'm not around calling people fat and, fat and ugly. That's my, That's me. Um, they're my words. But yeah. <laughs> came off that. So that was something I thought was really amazing. Because I, I don't imagine many male writers, opinion writers, get hit with the, you're fat and ugly, you're fat and ugly, you're fat and ugly, you're abomination to all men. No one would want to fuck you. Um, or maybe they do. Um, <laughs> I've been trolling them. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, that's only one part of the discussion we'll have today, but I, I think it's incredibly relevant because as much as we like to believe things have changed for women, as a mother of four daughters, I don't believe it has, and I think it's got harder and much trickier and because it's harder to, to, to actually navigate, and I think it's never been more important as women and as a community to have these discussions. So please welcome to, to, the, to the stage, I can barely, so if I start stumbling, I'm not drunk, not yet. <laughs> um, it's just a little bit fatigued. So Clementine Ford here on my immediate right. has she's quickly become one of the most important feminist writers in the country. Fearless in her critiques, unapologetic in her politics. She's become an online sensation the scourge of trolls and misogynists everywhere. God bless you. Mm-hmm. Goddess bless you, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Atheist bless you. Her debut, Fight Like a Girl, is an essential manifesto for feminists, new, old and soon to be and exposes just how unequal the world continues to be for women. Please welcome Clementine Ford. It's very exciting for old feminists like me to meet the new ones coming through. I thought there was going to be no one. And we can have a lie down now. (laughs) (laughs) We're that tired. (laughs) Fucking sick of it. (laughs) So lovely to meet you too. And you too, Michael. You too, (laughs) Michael. Great that you Breeley Bree Lee is a Brisbane-based writer at the, and the founding editor of Hot Chicks with Big Brains magazine, What a great title, which is available at the festival shop. She's the inaugural um, Cat Muscat, Muscat Fellow, a 2017 Griffith Review Fellow. Oh, woke your baby up. I'm always waking babies up. Sorry. It's because I'm ovulating. And her debut memoir, Eggshell Skull, will be published by Alan Unwin in 2018. Her work has appeared in the Guardian, Griffith Review, Broadly and ID. Vault and elsewhere. Please welcome Brie Lee. (laughs) Fantastic. And Michael Sala down there, and he's just come from a big walk up to the lighthouse. So um, he's really, I know, he's really doing some, not just thinking, walking. (laughs) So, Michael was born in the Netherlands in 1975 to a Greek father and a Dutch mum. He came in to Australia in the 1980s. His critically acclaimed debut, The Last Thread, won the New South Wales Premier Award for new writing. And his second offering, A Work of Fiction, The Restorer, um, is the book that we are talking about today, is an insider's account of a broken marriage. Set in Newcastle where he lives, Salah draws on his own personal experience as a child who grew up in domestic violence, telling the devastating story of a family in the middle of abuse. So, isn't that hard? Please welcome Michael. Um, it's very hard to start the panel now for poor Clementine because that's her baby crying, which is always hard, isn't it? You all right?
1: Oh, I'm fine. It's just he's just pulling some patriarchal bullshit. It's that's fine. right. That's what they do. <laughs> no, it's very hard. It, it is not. Riddle. It is hard. It it is hard. Riddle Take riddle him out, further away. out
0: of- further away. Further <laughs> away. <laughs> Children are much better far away. When you when they
1: get close, very irritating. Um, this is what it feels like to be on the internet, though. It's just it's just baby men just being wheeled past you, crying. You're fat.
0: <laughs> oh, they need nannies. They need a little, you know, a bit of whatever. Anyway, we're trying to talk about gender today and how it drives our narrative. So. I'd like to start personally with each of you um, to ask, how, you know, how gender and dominant constructs have have played into to your life and and, and forming you as a writer. Are, were you aware, you know, at that point at when you started forming your voice as a writer, of how much gender came into play? Because sometimes sometimes you're not really aware until until later on. Do you want to start, Brie?
2: Um, sure. Uh, so for those of you that don't know, my background is in the legal industry. Um, my book, Eggshell Skull is um, a memoir about my year as a judge's associate in the district court. And when I started, so I'm qualified to practice law, definitely don't, (laughs) um, I started that job and um, thought that I was going to do that job and then be a barrister and and do the the right thing, the law thing. And it took not very long at all, a few weeks of sitting in court and hearing um, a new trial and a few new sentences every single week before I, I... just started, I had this sensation the whole time of going, is anyone else hearing this? This is horrific, the way women are treated in not only the legal industry, but the justice system is horrific. And I didn't know it at the time, but I just started taking um, a little notebook into court with me and I just started making notes and taking down quotes. And then about nine months later, um, I was applying for the Cat Musket Fellowship and I needed to um, come up with an idea for sort of one big project and I just looked at it and I had just I just had a a folder full of material. Um and so it was I didn't set out to be a feminist writer in terms of like writing about gender issues. They just like bashed me over the head in waves day after day.
3: Thank you. And and Michael? Well I guess um Gender's sort of been something I've thought about for a very long time um, because, I mean, my father thought of himself, thinks of himself, I guess, um, as an incredibly masculine person. Um, He also uh, sexually abused my brother when uh, I was young, and he was also extremely violent towards my mother, which she didn't hold against him. She... um, she said that they would have stayed madly in love if it hadn't have been for the, the, the sexual abuse. Um, so my father also... Uh, he had this ideal of masculinity. He idolised my older brother. And he rejected me because I didn't fit that ideal. And so he didn't want anything to do with me. Um, my mother left uh, left the, the relationship when... Uh, when I was two, I think, and um, she hooked up with another man, who was also turned out to be extremely violent, and um, and and he focused a lot of that on me. I'm sorry. so sorry to interrupt this That's incredibly distressing fine. story. <laughs> <laughs> That's <a> <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's completely fine. I, I, was, I was telling Clementine that I took my 10-month-old baby to the Perth Writers' Festival a few years back. And it was really a challenge. <laughs> anyway, um, so my stepfather, um, he ended up... Uh, that relationship uh, broke up when I was 10, uh, and I think there was a moment there where he possibly could have killed the whole family, but he didn't. And uh, he did abduct my younger brother and disappear into Queensland. And uh, that kind of devastated the family. So that was one side of my experience. I saw all of these hyper-masculine, super-destructive men. Um, And my grandfather wasn't... He kind of stood by and my grandparents felt that my mum should have stuck it out with the first husband because they were these hardcore Catholics So their belief was essentially that my older brother had been sexually abused because my mother hadn't satisfied, hadn't been a good wife. So, um, you know, I didn't have a great view of masculinity growing up and, um, you know, then we moved to Newcastle and I don't know if Newcastle has a great relationship with masculinity either. So... um, The two books I wrote, I guess, are sort of explorations of my relationship to masculinity. Um, The second novel uh, is written from the perspective of a 14-year-old girl in 1989. I was a 14-year-old boy in 1989 in Newcastle, and that was the year of the Lee Lee murder. She was in my year. Um, So that's the kind of... um, in part, that novel is really about a certain kind of atmosphere that can pervade a place and that can be really oppressive.
0: Thank you. And that, that incredible sense of danger too and that lack of safety that comes.
3: Yeah, and I and I, I, I do think, um, I mean, uh, I, I think boys in that sort of environment have to be careful because they can get beaten up and all this sort of stuff, but for... Women, again, it's gender-based. I mean, for women it's particularly dangerous and oppressive. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And, and
0: Clementine, it is... Uh, I mean, Michael was touching on the whole idea of hyper-masculinity, mm. you know, I suppose, and we are talking about when gender... um Hello. He's so cute. <laughs> What's his name?
1: Oh, uh, it's... I'd prefer not to say... In oh, the are, sorry, don't. Sorry. I'm going to call him Baby. <laughs> um, I, forgot I only text. say that not because I don't trust everyone in the room but there's just so many horrible people out there and his his name already was I already said his name on a podcast somewhere and and then of course the anti-feminism Australia people who stalk me cottoned onto it and now they just talk about him using his name and that just Ugh. yeah it's not even it's not it's just how, how does that not
0: become a form of violence that you can report well, to the police it as just a fe-
1: well because they're anonymous you know and I've, my experience with police has not been Amazing in that I just don't feel like they really take it seriously, um, but there's something so benign about using your child's name, but so aggressive and despicable as well. So mm. apologies, everyone. And if you, if you do take photos of the panel, if you could just make sure that any that have his face in it aren't don't find them way to social media because they'll use anything. Um, Michael, thank you so much for sharing that incredibly vulnerable and powerful story um the first like the very first little bit that I want to say is that people often ask me you know how long did it take you to write Fight Like a Girl and my two-pronged answer to that is that it practically took about eight months but it's a book that I've been writing you know since I was an adolescent um and I've lately, and I feel like that's probably similar. It's, it's yeah. certainly similar for you, Bree, since since becoming the judges associate, but definitely similar for you since you were a child. And I've lately become really interested in that impact of gender on on boys and men and how the the society that we live in creates, not not just inflicts harm on boys, but also creates perfect storms in which boys... ...are kind of massaged almost to inflict harm on other people. Um, Because you could have gone either way. And that's what's what's frightening, you know. This sort of sense that somehow... And people use that as an excuse. I just saw a story today about an ex-soldier who murdered his wife. Or murdered his girlfriend. And, uh, you know, a lot of the comments focused on... ...well, we need to really be doing so much more to help soldiers with their PTSD. Well, we need to be doing that anyway... Yeah. We need to probably also not be, um, you know, living in a hyper-militar- hyper-militaristic country that values masculinity and aggression and war. Yeah. Um, but we don't need to respond to a domestic homicide by saying, well, you know, he's, he was just a very troubled person, of course, because of his history with war. Um, that happens too often to victims of domestic homicide where... The woman is really erased from the scenario. I mean, I was talking about Jeff Hunt with someone today, and Jeff Hunt was the um Lock. lock what was the town? Locklear. Locklear. Lockier? Is it Locklear? Locklear. Um There was. It was a rural farming town. I can't remember the exact name of it. My Lockhart? Bad. Lockhart. Lockhart. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Jeff Hunt was the farmer in Lockhart who murdered with a shotgun his wife and three children. And a widespread response to that, because, of course, Jeff Hunt was white and middle class and struggling farmer. A um, widespread response was, well, you know, he was just probably had so many pressures. So many pressures that would lead a man to... Mur- you have to be sympathetic. He had so many pressures. Yeah. And then the double impact of that was that his wife had had a, a car accident the year before and had been left with disabilities that... Um, People seemed to think that that was a mitigating circumstance, and the fact that he chose to murder his whole family was well—you know, his wife was left disabled, and it's very hard. Mm -hmm. It's very hard for for men with disabled wives, and you know, he was—he was such a good bloke. He used to help. I heard, I saw this quoted by one of his friends. He was such a good bloke and a good husband to her because he used to help her get in and out of the car. And and so, of course, people are like, well, you know, I understand. He's really struggled, you know. He's having a real tough time. Mm. Um, and I feel like the kind of masculinity that... And the, the 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 warning of masculinity that you perhaps write about... ...is along those lines that if you create an environment... ...where men are not only expected to be one very solid... ...very unrepentant thing, mm. but... ..when they, when the logical conclusion of that manifests and violence occurs... ..that there's all these excuses made for them. Because, of, oh, well, of course, you know, it's very hard. It's very hard for men today. Mm. It's very hard for men with empowered women today.
3: Yeah, it's funny. It, it, but, oh, yeah, sorry, you keep oh, going. Sorry, I, I was just going to say... Um, yeah, it's kind of like it seems to me... ..that there's a real um, valorization of violence in mm. Australia. And it particularly comes out in sport... Um, like, that's where you see real evidence of it and where it's somehow OK, like, you know, um, this idea that a man can only be authentic in a way if they kind of express some violence at some point. It's mm. like getting back to something essential about being a man. Um, so, you know, I don't know if they... Like, in, in my town, for example, there's a lot of people... that, you, that You'll see T-shirts that say, Bring Back to Biff. Mm. And what that refers to is brawls in rugby league... <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, it's just that Sounds idea. Sounds like a
0: fun Saturday night out. I know. I yeah. well, well, that's Great. one of those terms I came across I- in reading, and I, I don't think it's even new, I just hadn't heard it before. And it was some blog that was referring to the pussification of men. And I thought, isn't that bizarre? And that's not talking about men losing their masculinity by, I mean, also by becoming seen as weak. And it's interesting mm. that once again, the weakness is then attributed. ...to the female vagina, which I think when you push one of these out. Can I
1: please just <laughs> say something on that note? That um, I'm going to say the worst word that you can yeah. say in the English language, cunt. Um, and I look, it's fine if not everyone in this room likes that word... ...but I think that if you don't like that word... ...or if you, if you believe and say what's well, the worst word that you can use in the English language... It's ...the worst word you can call a woman... Firstly, you have to acknowledge that it's usually considered... When you strip it back, it's usually only the worst word a woman can hear. Because no one ever says to men that when they're speaking privately that they shouldn't use that word because it's the worst word that you can use. Mm. It's just the worst word you can use around women's ears. But also, why is it so acceptable? Like the word pussy isn't considered that way. No. You know, no one says, oh, well, pussy's the worst word. To call someone a pussy, oh, that's the worst thing that you can call someone. Because pussies are weak. They're... um, Mm. They're considered to be, you know, it's, a, it's an emasculated term. If you call someone a pussy, you're calling them a coward. You're calling them someone who, who's not living up to their full, full potential as a man. But cunt is different. Cunt, it's, it's, it's powerful. It's, it's powerful. It's dark. It's... Angry. ...mysterious. It's angry. Oh, it's the worst word that you can use. The worst word you can use to call anyone. But pussy's fine.
0: It's interesting. You know what,
1: sometimes my cunt is angry. That's right.
0: (laughs) Maybe they could call it the cuntification of men.
3: (laughs) Well, I know, and that would be almost like they're getting really, you know, badass or something, you know. Yeah. Um, But I I just want to add to that just interestingly because it's it's one of my favourite words. Like, uh, it it really is, I'm sorry. Um, Same. But, yeah, and and the reason it is is, uh, I mean, I'm from Holland and my aunts who, who are religious, they'll sit there and they'll say it. And, you know, like I remember from my childhood, it was like it, was rea- it wasn't It was such a bad word there. It was just an f- expression. Mm. So um, it was really interesting in Australia that, to come here and to see how kind of much baggage was associated with it.
2: Yeah, it is. My- Can I just take half a step back to something that you mentioned earlier, Michael, and just uh, two weeks ago um, I f- chaired a panel um, that... was occurring, it was like a talk with three directors, each who had directed a version of Black Rock, which is a play by Nick Enright, which is based on the Lee Lee Mm. murder. Um, And in it we were talking about, which I think is particularly relevant at a writers' festival, um, and what I would like to add just quickly is that these stories that we consume and these um, ideas that Australians love to hold on to about what Mm. makes a man and then what makes a woman those play out in the courtroom in mm. trials all the time. And there is such a problem with um, these dominant narratives that we have because jurors are a random cross-section, allegedly, of the population and if they think that a man behaves in a certain way, mm. that's that. Uh, it's, it's all stories and it's conflict and resolution.
0: And you talk about in your essay, which is in the Griffiths Review, about how in court... Which I didn't realise that... I I know that with victim-blaming, if a woman is drunk and she's raped, it's seen as you know, not that she wasn't able to give consent. Oh, that she was to tango, some, Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the on-o. And but if he's drunk, that's seen as defence because he wasn't able to... I mean, mm. ha, ha, it, how are you able to meet up that, that inequity in the court system?
2: Yeah, so just to explain um, briefly, um, what you're referring to is when, um, when there is a case of rape or sexual assault, and this is Queensland law, but similar law exists in other states, or other states have since abolished it because it's real stupid, um, what Can happen is that the prosecution can say that the woman did not consent but then if it's potentially open on the facts the prosecution have to prove not only that a woman did not consent but that a man could not possibly have had a mistaken belief that she consented and what that means is that he had a subjective belief at the time and if he is extremely intoxicated that helps him to prove that he mistakenly believed that she did consent. And there is case law, a multitude of it, um, that I'm researching at the moment, where a woman and a man have both been drinking all night, and because she's been drinking, her credibility is falls through the floor, and because he's been drinking, it helps him to be able to prove the case that he mistakenly misinterpreted the cues.
1: Well, this was, this was um, in the case trial notes of the <coughs> the appeal the successful appeal for the acquittal of Luke Lazarus mm-hmm. who was convicted initially of raping um, an 18-year-old woman outside of his father's nightclub um, in a, his father's nightclub called Soho in Sydney she they went outside they would just met about 5 minutes previous she had drunk 10 drinks which the chi- the trial judge can't have it the trial judge said that she had had ten drinks, but there was, you know, it, it, it wasn't clear whether or not she was drunk. They, she downplayed the drunkenness of the victim. Luke Lazarus had had nine standard drinks, and she, he was described as being moderately drunk, perhaps more so than that. Um, and the situation was, for those who don't know, they were talking outside. She kept saying that she wanted to go back into her friends, and he he obviously ignored that he pulled her pants down and she pulled them back up underneath her dress and then he ordered her to turn around and face the wall and the situation or the rape and I believe it was a rape despite the acquittal it was one of those circumstances which is much more likely to fit the profile of a sexual assault which was a a process of coercion, a process of ignoring and then of coercion Um, and yeah, the, the alcohol did play a part in that and exactly what you said as well about the the belief or the claimed belief of the person on trial. The judge acknowledged that the woman in this situation did not consent to having sex with Luke Lazarus, but she believed that Luke Lazarus thought she'd consented and so that, that meant that he couldn't be convicted of wow. rape.
0: So what message does that send to, to women in the population? What is the, the bigger message we're being told as women about our safety?
1: I think a lot of women believe that there's no... It's, it's not difficult to understand why the majority of victims of sexual assault don't report mm. to police or don't take their cases to the legal system. For that girl to have gone through that situation in particular... To secure a conviction and then have it turned, uh, overturned and, and be told, well, he believed that you were consenting despite all of the evidence to the contrary. It's is, is going to have a yeah. lifelong long impact on you. The her.
2: really frustrating thing about mistake of fact as well is that um, it gives juries a bit of an out because it makes juries comfortable enough to say, okay, we believe that she didn't consent and that must feel really, really shit, but it's a grey zone and he mistakenly believed that she did. So, by allowing mistake of fact, juries don't have to feel that awful sense of responsibility that they're saying she was into it. They can kind of – it's this, like, loophole that Mm. means that juries don't have to feel the full weight of responsibility for the fact that they are finding. You
1: don't have to hold a man to account while also demonising the woman. You're you're allowed to like both of them.
2: Yeah.
0: Which is – Well, that's what's still happening here, isn't it, is that we're still not – we're still allowing men not to take responsibility for their behaviour and putting the onus on women. I mean, I still tell my teenage our adult and our daughters the messages. i will go, oh, we're, you know, a lot of the messages... I don't tell them not to go out dressed like that because clearly I dress like that too. <laughs> uh,
3: <laughs>
0: but I do give them a lot of tips around personal safety based on the fact of what I know as a woman to be to be dangerous for them. And that's because they live in a world... ...where this happens and men get away with it.
1: I think this is one of the most frustrating things... ...is that so often... ...and Bree, you've probably heard the same things. When I write about um, victim blaming... ...and I write about how we as a society need to remove the focus... ...on the victims and survivors of sexual assault... ...and put it on to the people most likely mm. to perpetrate that assault. So firstly, whether or not Luke Lazarus or men like him... ...believe that they've committed a sexual assault... Is relevant, but it's it's kind of ir- ir- more irrelevant to the point of how a young men, especially being subtly educated to collude with a system that allows them to get away with things. It I don't think that anyone can rationally look at what happened and look at what happens in most of those scenarios and think that the person believed they were having a respectful consensual encounter. Yeah. But the fact that they've been told and they're reflecting this idea that all they need to do is push the no until they get the yes is a problem. And yet when you talk about these things and you say, well, we need to shift the focus onto the people actually perpetrating the crimes, often you'll be flooded with people saying, oh, oh, you're actually creating harm. You know, how dare you tell me that I can't give my daughter common sense tips? How dare you tell me that I can't instruct her to be careful when she walks out of the house and it's like, I'm not telling you that. We live in the world that we live in. And of course, everyone wants to protect their loved ones. Of course, they're going to say, in exactly the same way that if your kid is going, you know, taking the car out, you'll say, be careful, drive safely, because you can't control what other people are doing on, this, on the road. Yeah. But you're also not going to say to your kid, if if they're hit by a drunk driver, oh, well, you shouldn't have been in that car. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a great mum.
2: <laughs> Driving is a perfect example there too, because from a legal perspective, if you drink and then you drive, you are held completely responsible for your actions behind the wheel. Yeah. Um, also, I'm currently doing a research project with one of my old lecturers, and we're putting forward a legislative um, proposal to abolish the mistake of fact defence in Queensland. So keep an eye out. Yes, yeah, put on there. Your-
0: I mean, in a in a in a sense too. I mean, it's. I mean, I suppose it's talking a little bit now about you, you brought up before about the kind of stuff that had happened with trolling, and that isn't a sense. I mean, that happened initially. We had it happen before, but when you responded because of the, the sunrise mm. um, incident, where you um, can tell t- tell the lovely people here, they might. when you actually sort of wrote on your chest after.
1: Oh, uh, sunrise. Um. There was a, a horrible situation a couple of years ago in Adelaide where 400 local Adelaide girls and women had their photographs stolen from them, nude photographs that they may have had or nude photographs that they'd sent to people, stolen and put on a public server. And, um, you know, this is... We live in a world where this technology is available and there are a, there's an incredibly broad spectrum of people who take sexy photographs of themselves and send them to a partner. It's not a new thing that was invented with phones but it's something that's definitely been made more easy with phones or made easier. So these these girls and women had their photographs stolen which is a crime which should be the only pertinent point and Sunrise posted something on their Facebook page a link to this, the story saying girls when will you learn um, because of course it's their fault that someone hacked into a system and stole their photographs so that they could be humiliated um, so I just wrote on, I took a sort of a topless photo in that you could tell I wasn't wearing a top, but I kept my actual nipples out of it because I thought, well, Facebook will remove it. Um, because, because, of course, your nipples are way more offensive than rape threats. Um, and I just wrote on my chest, get fucked sunrise, and wrote this big post about victim blaming and about how you know we need to move away from this idea that it's always the people who are targeted by criminal activity particularly when it's women mm-hmm. who have to be responsible for explaining that criminal activity or, or accept that it's somehow their fault I um, and people always use the property theft analogy that oh well if you leave your if you leave your wallet on your windowsill with the window open and someone comes along and steals it then you've only got yourself to blame and it's like well firstly my vagina's not a wallet um <laughs> I can't just leave it somewhere, no matter how much I try. <laughs> but also, if I leave my car unlocked and I leave the wallet on the windowsill, and someone comes along and steals it, it's still a crime. <laughs> and we raise people to know better than that. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that I've walked into that situation and that I yeah. only have myself to blame.
0: It, it seems so often too that every time we engage in, in those discussions, though, it becomes. It then goes down to a discussion around you or around, like when you talk about domestic violence, I've often mm-hmm. seen discussions around domestic violence end up being, uh, come back to, well, what about men who are victims of domestic violence, which sometimes stops the discussion talking about, because children are victims, and I'm sure there are men who are victims, but once that happens.
1: But wouldn't you say that you're. You're a man. You're a man who's a victim of domestic violence
3: or a survivor of it, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I guess, I mean, and I I think children in particular, they are huge victims of this sort of thing. Um, But I I, I think it's just used to short circuit arguments, isn't it? I mean, that's the problem. It's not, they're not, like, there's nothing good that comes of the way that that kind of counter argument gets raised. And,. it's it's also just about focusing on the issue at hand and kind of going, well, most of the people that are murdered by their partners are women and it's overwhelming. Mm. Um, and um, that's a, a major issue that needs to be addressed and just kind of trying to divert it by kind of adding more and more little sub-narratives to it. It's just designed to mm. short-circuit it rather than to actually address the issue at hand.
1: The interesting thing... Um, Because often I've, you know, I write a lot about men's violence against women, and I Mm. and I get that rejoinder as well. You know, well, what about the male victims? What about the male victims? And when you talk about, when you try and actually have an engaged discussion and say, yes, let's talk about the male victims of violence. Let's talk about the fact that the majority, the vast majority of men are likely to be victimised by someone, by another man, for a start, probably a man that they don't know on the street or someone who's a friend of theirs. It's it's almost. Certainly not likely to do with a sexual intimacy. Um, and for the male di- victims of domestic violence, yes, there are male victims of domestic violence who have been victimised by women. But again, the vast majority of male victims will have been victimised by their fathers, their stepfathers, their uncles. Do you know yeah. that the the a good proportion of numbers of male victims are actually children to parents
3: yeah. of
1: violence? Um and so you can actually share these facts with people, but they don't want to have that discussion. They're not no. interested in the male victims of violence because if they were, they'd be interested in having a conversation about how men and masculinity in this country in particular is is so rigid and distilled to the point of accepting only a very slim standard of masculinity that is, is harmful to all people, but they don't want to have that conversation. So they, they don't care. They They only want to do... They only want to derail it so that you can't talk about the fact that women are being killed in this country. Yeah.
2: Something really interesting that I discovered and wrote about in um, the Millennials edition of the Griffith Review, an essay I wrote, is that um, two things, two quick levels. People um, of every single progressive generation think that, that like, the young people and the next generation are getting more and more violent when actually the opposite is true. And across the board, less and less violent crimes are being committed every single year. And that's something to to really hold on to and remember. But the second part of that is that men are committing less and less violent crimes against men and actually more and more violent crimes Mm. against women.
3: Mm.
2: And that overall, like, statistics are so tricky. um, And that, yeah, it's... That's. I wrote a whole essay about it, and especially about how young women are always the victims. And, for example, sexual crimes have of all criminal acts, um, sexual crimes are the second most, um, the second oldest average age of the of the perpetrator. Like wow. old old men are the most sexually mm-hmm. violent, and young women are the most at risk. Of sexual mm. violence, and it's just just reinforces the fact that it's about power imbalance. So,
1: so when do we stop? And, and
2: opportunity yeah. as well. Oh. Yeah. The yep. the
1: the number of stories I've heard from survivors of sexual violence, where it's it's just about someone taking an opportunity, mm. you know, and that's that's actually incredibly frightening.
2: Yeah. Contrary to popular yeah. opinion, these are not like people. Um, You know, it's really important that, for example, um, the historical sex allegations about the Catholic Church are coming out. But what that has created in people's minds is the idea that particularly um, sexual violence against girls and young women are committed by um, pedophiles and what we Mm. think of to be pedophiles. But actually the vast majority of, like, young teenagers, so you're talking about girls between the ages of, like, 9 and 14, they're not offended against by pedophiles. They're offended against by people who are known to them, who just take the opportunity, who may have never even offended before and may never offend again, Mm. but they just want to in that instance. And they don't think they'll be held accountable for it. and They don't give a shit about what they're doing to another human being. It's Mm. not... yeah. We have this idea of what evil looks like and what a sex offender looks like, and it's not. They just look like ordinary people. We
0: don't take it, though, as... I mean, most of us... I grew up in a country town in Queensland. I would have been sexually assaulted Five times before I left school, for men, most of us women, uh, that was just the norm of our, our, of how our sexuality or growing up was that, you know, unwanted advances, someone grabbing you, having to give someone a blowjob to get a lift home or mm-hmm. to get out of their car, um, that you know, and I think it's still within. I know with my own daughters, it's still within the language of of, of younger people is an acceptance. Of, ..of intolerable behaviour. I mean, how, how do you move past that? Like, how do you move into, you know, a, a place where, you know, women aren't treated or women don't even see themselves like that as well? Because often you'll just accept it without... You know, it doesn't even feel like something you could report. It's just something you tolerate.
1: Mm. You know, when I watched the brilliant Channel 10 adaptation of... Puberty Blues, Um, if you you haven't seen it, it's really a fantastic TV show Um, and it expands a lot on the original book and the original movie. But I remember posting about it on my Facebook, my private page, and friends of mine in their 50s talking about... ..saying this is like watching their adolescent lives on screen. Mm -hmm. And to me it was a bit of that sort of like... ..I guess in that same way that some people who are watching The Handmaid's Tale now... Who, and, I, and I just sort of tangentially want to make the point that there was this brilliant blog post that was written about *The Handmaid's Tale* and about people saying, you know, oh my God, this is a terrifying glimpse into the into a possible future. It's not a handbook, etc. And this uh, woman, uh, an African American woman, wrote this incredible blog post about how we need to, in the in the you know, in the service of recognizing intersectionality, we need to acknowledge that this might be a terrifying future for a lot of white women, but it's actually a, a past for a lot of women of colour. It's definitely a past for Aboriginal women in this country. The the control of, of women's reproductive organs based on how how much the state wants that woman to reproduce is a reality for many women in this country. Um, but, you know, I watch something like Puberty Blues and it seems to me like this horrible, dystopian kind of environment that it clearly is a, is a past. Um, and I wonder how much... Clearly some things about that sort of those interactions have changed. He's alright. He's he he's will figure it out. Um, okay. But <laughs> but then you think, you know, you say you say oh, I would have been sexually assaulted five times before I finished school. I think that's a reality for a lot of girls mm. still today, you know. Yeah, that, that's what I mean it is. But there's there's the the pressure and, and this is the you know, this is where the coercion thing comes into, the coercive sexual assault that doesn't feel like doesn't feel to the person experiencing it like they can complain about it because they technically said yes or they went along with it
0: well yeah girls still call each other sluts and it's always that thing of this is this is how boys behave it's that the onus is still not coercion is
2: particularly relevant to talking about intersectional feminism as well i read a dissenting judgment which thank god was dissenting where Um, A woman in a wheelchair, and this is like ableism 101, a woman in a wheelchair um, called a taxi to take her home from the supermarket and the taxi dropped her home and the taxi driver asked, may I kiss you? And she said, no. And then he kissed her. And then she still needed his help to get out of the vehicle and to get up into her home and he followed her into her home and whilst they were inside her home, he got in the front door by asking if he could use the bathroom and she said, yes. And then he came out of the bathroom and proceeded to perform all kinds of sexual acts on her. And in a dissenting judgment, a judge said that the taxi driver might have been mistaken as to whether or not she consented, because at one stage he said, come here, and she wheeled her chair over to him. Wow. Well, she you like, wanted it, you know. If you're talking about coercion... That was, and that her, was
1: very dark satire. Yeah, yeah,
2: if you're talking about coercion, like this woman just repeatedly in her evidence said, I I was just so terrified and I knew something really awful was going to happen and I was just trying to get it over and done with. And yeah. that her actions in that situation might have made out mistake of fact. And a judge said that the man might have mistakenly believed she consented. And for women who are women of colour... Um, women with disabilities, coercion in particular, is a beast. beast. Well, yeah.
1: I think, just, sorry, just quickly at that point, it's really worth mentioning as well that 90% of women with an intellectual disability have experienced sexual violence. 90%.
2: Mm.
1: And one of the responses to <coughs> the risk of sexual... You know, mentioning The Handmaid's Tale before, one of the responses to the risk of sexual violence, particularly in care situations... Is for families to petition judges, who then agree to have their daughters sterilised. Because apparently the reasoning being, the reasoning offered is that this will prevent sexual abuse.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: Just just prevents pregnancy, but you know, out well, of it, sight, well, it out almost of mind. accepts
0: that abuse is going to happen, but we're just going to make sure people don't get pregnant. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it protects the abuser. Um, I, th- I think he wants to be on stage, Clementine. <laughs> I've got nothing left in my handbag. <laughs>
1: I'm not gonna apologize. Don't really apologize, movie.
0: it's really it's true. <laughs> I should know? say. No, it's I think it's that—that that is true, isn't it? That how many times have you been to a writers festival and seen a man on stage with his baby?
2: Can I just say one of the first times I ever met Clem, I was interviewing her for a magazine and I just happened to – I attended a school talk that she was doing um, and she was breastfeeding and I just looked out into the audience and there were just like all these kids like – like a sea of 15-year-old boys going (laughs) – Yeah. Oh so funny. <laughs> and just like the watching the process of cognition being like, Oh my god, what boobs and then like, oh but but not the way I wanna see boobs yeah. and then like She's Did old. I ever do that to a boob? And then like, <laughs> Oh Mum, oh like this <laughs> is this beautiful thing. <laughs>
0: That, that is the thing too, around isn't it? around the around the body? So before we go to questions in the next five minutes, and because it's a big discussion to talk about gender in in an hour, and to um to, to cover areas that we're we're trying to cover, is 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 what we still face as and for men as well. I think the messages are getting out there pretty strong. What it means to be a man physically, but for women, you know, that, do you still see that the messages in the media? do you think they're becoming more powerful about about types or is there more of a voice leaning? Are we starting to get a voice? I mean, I feel... It's hard to know whether you're not just old going. It feels stronger to me. It feels like there's more mirrors looking at me, telling me I'm old and invisible, or my daughter, that she's too fat and meaningless.
1: I think that the body positivity movement has has enabled a lot of change in thinking my only I guess discomfort with some of it is that it's still because of the medium that's being used social media there's still very much a um I, I don't really buy into or like that idea that everyone's allow, everyone has the right to feel beautiful because it's always beautiful in a very specifically conventionally attractive way um there's still there's still rules within that mm. about who gets to be yeah. Gets Objectified to be yeah. um, which isn 't to say that everyone shouldn 't feel amazing about themselves or feel like they have that they look fantastic, but there 's just something about like this sort of celebrate celebrate your curves, but only celebrate them if you 're still a conventionally attractive white woman um, and there was this this horrible like patronizing vomitous post that went viral yesterday from this yeah. guy, some of you may have seen it. Um, and it seemed to me quite clear that he is also trying to parlay something into like an, you know, sort of Instagram success story. It's a photograph of him and his very gorgeous wife, who's probably about a size twelve, but looks larger than your typical model. She's a swimsuit model, by the way, as well. So um and he's it's this photograph with her. She's way more attractive than him, also. And he's like, I used to get teased when I was a high school when I was in high school because I liked thicker girls. I liked girls with, you know, larger thighs and, well, now I'm married to this woman and she is just the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Sure, she's not going to ever be on the cover. Of, she's not going to feature on the cover of Cosmopolitan, but she features in my heart. Um, <laughs> lady, You know, boys, don't, don't you know, I, oh, I learned about feminism and it taught me about standards of beauty and expectations that are placed on women. And then he finished with this gross, like, ladies don't worry about what you look like because somewhere out there is a man who thinks that you uh. just look so amazing. Have you
0: got his number?
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm so. not going to give it to you because oh. I'm volume first. Anyway, so he posted this thing and all these, like, fucking BuzzFeed, the Huffington Post, all these yeah. places are like, this man's heartfelt love letter to his wife's curves is the thing that you need to read today. <laughs> I'm oh. not crying, you're crying. And I was just reading it like, that's disgusting. She I'm not vomiting. You're vomiting.
0: I know. <laughs> yeah. She should post one that says, "I used to like men with really big cocks, <laughs> but now." <laughs> <laughs>
1: but I, 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 learned to, I learned that there are more important. Things. No. Yeah, but so, I'm, so the other thing as well is, I mean, not only is this gross, but in nowhere there's all these photographs then of her like in her bathing suit, and you know, she's a swimsuit model. She's gorgeous. And so this idea that somehow she'll never be on the cover of a magazine, um, but he his his sort of like praise for someone described as being like it's really a love letter to himself. Aren't I amazing? I love my father. Oh, yeah. Um, and then and then I also read this great point, which is kind of like the, the circuitously the point that I want to get to, that. He wrote this thing and was widely praised for loving his wife's curves, for being, you know, so brave that he could come out and talk about know. how much he loves his fat wife. <laughs> She's not fat. Um, and it would be fine if she was. But when women come out and they say, you know what, I'm really proud of my body. I love my body. I, I think that I look amazing. I don't. I don't want to lose weight, I've tried, or, you know, this is who I am, oh, promoting obesity, <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you should get on the treadmill, love. You know, it's like the, the fact that she was completely absent aside from her physicality mm. in this whole story and no-one wants to hear from her. Yeah, she's like a car. Well, <laughs> honestly, I mean, his Instagram is also filled with lots of pictures of that, so make yeah. of that what you will.
0: But it's also that belief in that it's really kind of almost old-fashioned, isn't it, like that... that that we as women, our, our primary goal in life for success is to be on the cover of a
1: magazine. <laughs> I asked my... I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm aware that I've talked a lot today as well, but um, I have a lot to say. I <laughs> apologise to my co-panelists. Um, I swear that I get to have adult conversations these days. Um, but just very, very quickly, when I was writing my book, I wrote to my dad and I said to him you know why did you make me and my sister feel my dad's not a terrible person but I said why did you make me and my sister feel so bad about our weight when we were growing up we were always told you know do you really need that extra slice do you need that extra helping oh you've lost weight isn't it wonderful I wish your sister could do that um all these sorts of like (laughs) hidden messages that that you you internalize and I said why did you make us feel so bad and he said well when I was growing up I could only ever get the bigger girls, and I, and he felt like it was a reflection on his masculinity, which is sort of like speaks to the whole damaging, you know, all of these damaging messages that he, he said I I always felt inadequate. Um, I mean, look, don't judge him for feelings that he had when he was an adolescent. We we had a really positive discussion about it, and I also spoke to my aunt about it. His sister, and, she, and you know, she's one of five. There's four boys and and her, and I said, what do you think it is about our family that really? emphasizes the need for women to look in a a particular way and her experience of it was that it came from their father and that it was this sense that women had an obligation to flatter men with their attractiveness and I had never heard it put like that before that it wasn't just about them approving of our looks but that we had an obligation to make them feel like big important men by being attractive around them. That if, they w- if we weren't attractive enough, then they somehow failed in the eyes of other men.
0: That just makes me want to get fatter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Worked but for me.
3: I, one thing that I thought was really interesting, um, I, I read your book and I, I loved it, um, and, but what struck me as amazing is on, on the other side of it, you know, everyone wants to be on the cover of a magazine, um, the absolute terror and rage and hate that came out for example when you said you were bringing out another book and you know let's boycott the bookstore you know and it was this abs- and I, I just you could just tell that these people and some of them actually said it they hadn't actually read your book but you know they knew that it was full of you know men. They, th- they thought
1: they were boycotting the bookstore because it was carrying my second book which yeah, hasn't been read- written yet. I
3: know yeah it was like this whole kind of And it just, what it actually reminded me of was um, when Salman Rushdie brought out um, the satanic verses, and you'd have all these people going, It's a terrible book, have you read it? No, but it's a terrible book. And it's kind of, I I think that that fear of actually hearing what you have to say and what a woman has to say about gender, that absolute fear shows how important it really is that you say it.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have reached the end of our panel today. Thank you very much to the panelists. Please put your hands together for Michael Sala, Greeley, and Clementine Ford and her lovely little guy. Thank you to you. Have a great rest of your festival. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2017. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website byronwritersfestival.com